Good morning. And I'd like to extend a special greeting to the Heinzmans who are with us this morning. And it's so great to have them share. If you want to turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 22 at the end of the chapter. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the field of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, should, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they have grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and uh, we thank you for the Heinzmans, for Ron and Julie who are with us today, and we just continue to pray for them and for their ministry in Taiwan, Lord, that you would uh, continue to, to bless them, and Lord, that they would be a blessing in that nation that so desperately needs your gospel. Lord, we pray for the school that Julie leads. We pray for all the many ways in which they are serving in that country. Lord, we uh, pray for our community. We pray for rain, Lord, more and more. That's something that we really, really need. And Lord, you know our needs, you hear our prayers, and we pray for that. Lord, we also want to continue to pray for people who are recovering. We pray for Ron Yergler. We pray for Mary Merkel. Lord, we pray for your blessings on them. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the truly inspiring missionaries of the 20th century was an Englishwoman named Gladys Elward. Born in 1902 into a working class family, her formal schooling stopped at the age of 14. This woman of humble origins was under five feet tall and never married. While she had been raised in a church-going family, 
It wasn't until she was in her 20s at a revival meeting in London that the gospel became real to her. A few years later, she felt led to missions, despite her lack of resources and education. She entered a missionary training program, but was asked to leave after three months because she struggled so much academically. She went to work. She saved up money so she could go on her own. And in 1932, she bought a one-way train ticket to China. The train had her going across Russia at a time when China and Russia were at war with each other. And at one point, the train that she was on was stopped and she had to walk on foot 30 miles through the Siberian wilderness. When she made it to the border of China, Gladys was not permitted into the country. But nothing was going to stop this woman. So she took a boat to Japan and was able to get into China through Japan, despite the fact that at that point, she didn't speak the language. But after a few years, she began to gain the trust of the locals. This was a time when foot binding was still practiced in China. And Gladys was chosen by the local officials to be the foot inspector. This gave her opportunities to go into people's homes where she was able to share the good news of the gospel. She also started multiple orphanages. In 1938, with a war being fought between China and Japan and the village where she was living under attack, she walked a group of roughly 100 orphans a distance of roughly 100 miles to safety from Japanese invaders. She also felt led to pursuing ministering in Chinese prisons where she would tell the story of Jesus to convicts and murderers. In her book, The Little Woman, she talks of a violent killer who once spat in her face, but whom she eventually led to faith in Christ. His conversion sparked a revival in the prison. Another time, she stopped a prison riot by promising to help negotiate better conditions for the prisoners. There are so many places where it would have made sense to stop, to go home, to give up. Her life story is crazy. Or I should say, it sounds crazy, if not for the great Savior whose death and resurrection had changed the life of a woman who had the desire to make Jesus known to people who didn't know him. We're resuming in the book of Ruth this morning. And in this book, we see the story of a woman who had a similarly zealous devotion to God. Like Aylward, she'd take a journey into a land that was foreign to her. And like Aylward, We'll see a woman whose trust in God through even the most challenging circumstances persevered. Two weeks ago, we gave an introduction to Ruth where we met a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons. They had left Israel. They had left the promised land during a time of drought to go to Moab. Elimelech, the husband, dies. His two sons marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. But after 10 years, both sons also die, and so you just have the three widows remaining. In today's passage, Naomi is the driver of a lot of the activity, but through Naomi's struggles and worries, we see it contrasted with the faithfulness of Ruth. The main idea of our passage is radical faith and a faithful God, and we'll look at today's passage in three parts. First part, the prodigal daughter. Looking at verse 6, the text says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the first mention of the Lord in this book. 
We see no reference to God in the opening section where the family leaves the promised land to live in Moab, nor when Naomi's husband and two sons die. But God is no less at work and active. The Lord can seem distant in our lives. One of the reasons why I think the book of Ruth is so beloved is because it's such a great picture of God's providence. And it's not a subject we'll talk a lot about today. Lord willing, we'll have more on that in the next couple of weeks. But he is at work all throughout this book, all throughout our lives, and all throughout history. Sometimes we forget about God, but God does not forget about his people. In today's passage, the text says that the Lord had visited his people. That's referring to the divine blessing that the Lord had bestowed on Israel as the drought had come to its end. And as Naomi hears the news, she decides to go back to Israel, verses 7 through 9. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. I said this in the beginning, but just as a reminder, Naomi's daughters-in-law are not Israelites. And so Naomi tells them to stay in their homeland of Moab. Naomi is just trying to do what she thinks is best for these women. She has the hand that she's been dealt in life. She's accepted it. But she feels like her daughters-in-law can still have a future. They're young enough where they can still have a realistic hope of remarriage. And they can still, hopefully, maybe, build a new life. And so you have this emotional scene where Naomi tells them that they should stay home. In verse 10, they push back. They say, we want to go with you. But in verses 11 through 13, Naomi tries to settle the matter. She explains all of the worldly, common-sense reasons why going with her doesn't make any sense and why they should stay with their people. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi's response at places sounds almost sarcastic. Have I yet sons in my womb? She's their mother-in-law. Her point is that she can't do anything for them. She's saying, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. Even if I was pregnant today, which I'm not, you'd still have to wait years for them to be of marriageable age. Keep in mind that in this society, marriage is not an institution that a woman could view as something she could take or leave. In the modern Western world, a woman can have a career, make money, build her own life, and she can do that by herself if she chooses. But we're talking about an ancient, highly patriarchal society. And an unmarried woman without kids had very few resources and opportunities for providing for herself. So after the two daughters-in-law have said that they want to go with Naomi, 
And after Naomi has given her speech on why they should not go with her, Orpah says, you don't have to tell me twice. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The author of Ruth withholds judgment on Orpah for making the decision that she made. But she exits the story never to be heard from again. And so we're just left with Ruth and Naomi. One of the dominant ideas in today's passage is the idea of returning. In the ESV translation, the word return gets used nine times in this passage. Several commentators on Ruth also note similarities between Naomi and the prodigal son featured in the well-known parable in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son leaves his father in his homeland. While away, he squanders the inheritance he's been given and ends up living in squalor with no hope and no prospects. His only option is to return home and hope that his father is merciful. He's willing to work as a servant for his father because even that would be better than living the life that he's living. To his surprise, when he does return home, the father welcomes him back with open arms and throws a feast and celebration. The father is overjoyed that the son who had left has returned. With Naomi, she and her family had left the promised land because they thought they'd have a better life in the fields of Moab. The prodigal son loses his wealth. For Naomi, she loses her family. Naomi, like the prodigal son, is forced to return home, but she's uncertain of the future that she has. But she simply has no other option. The prodigal son is a picture of the gospel, that we too have gone our own way. We think that the way to flourishing is through doing what we want, living how we want, deciding what's right in our own eyes. We are in sin and morally bankrupt apart from Christ. But Jesus invites us to return to our Father. Naomi experienced in the physical world what the gospel shows us in the spiritual world. And the good news is that God takes us back. And so we see this first contrast between Naomi and Ruth. Naomi had left the promised land and now must go back because she has no other option. Ruth has at least some options, but forsakes them for her mother-in-law and the, so she can come to the promised land. We come to our second scene, the faithful daughter. To this point in the book of Ruth, Ruth hasn't spoken. She was mentioned by name in the opening section in conjunction with her marriage to Naomi's son. The previous verse ended by saying that Ruth clung to Naomi. Naomi tries to encourage Ruth to depart from her as well, verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I would never follow my sister's-in-law, but... There's a theological implication to what Naomi is saying here. She's told Ruth to return to her gods, but the gods that the Moabites worshipped were pagan. So it's a little bit unclear if Naomi believed that their gods actually existed. Certainly there's no real evangelistic zeal coming from Naomi to have Ruth believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel. But ultimately, her words cannot dissuade Ruth, her daughter-in-law. From a worldly perspective, Ruth has a difficult decision to make. She can 
stay home with her people in her land, and hopefully she's young enough to marry again. Or she can go with her mother-in-law to Israel in a foreign land into the unknown and where she's signing up for what looks like a lifetime of difficulty. I think again of Gladys Elward, the English missionary I talked about in the beginning. The things that she did almost defy reason unless you know the God she believed in. And we'll see Ruth's desire to follow the Lord. Verses 16 through 18 are the most famous verses in this entire book. It's a poignant moment where Ruth gives a short speech to her mother-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Passage is sometimes quoted at weddings. A couple years ago at Mark and Andrea's wedding, that verse was quoted. But many have pointed out that wedding vows really don't take it as far as Ruth does. Wedding vows in America say, till death do us part. Ruth is saying, even after I die, I'm not leaving. Naomi said, turn back. Ruth said, I'm going with you. Naomi said, stay with your people. Ruth said that Naomi's people will be her people. Naomi said, return to your gods. Ruth said, Naomi's God will be her God. Naomi tells Ruth to live with her people. Ruth tells Naomi she's going to be buried with hers. It's a powerful moment. Why did Ruth want to follow God? Where did her great faith come from? We don't know exactly. Maybe Naomi or Ruth's late husband had told Ruth about Israel's God. But keep in mind that as great as Ruth's faith is, Naomi's family weren't exactly the all-star team of faith. We've seen in the passage already Naomi's theological acumen is questionable, to say the least. Her and her family had also abandoned the promised land. Naomi carries a lot of bitterness towards God, as we'll continue to see in this section. And yet, through all of those struggles and hardships, Ruth has a fierce devotion. Ruth is the ideal godly woman in the Old Testament. She's basically the personification of Proverbs chapter 31. But she comes from a place where she has these lackluster spiritual examples. I say that because let that be an encouragement in our own evangelistic efforts. And I mean that sincerely, that we can put so much pressure on ourselves to get it right, to have all the answers, to be prepared no matter what someone says. You are imperfect. You were sinful, and I am sinful. But God can still use us. I mentioned in the beginning that Gladys Elward led a convicted murderer to faith in Christ when he was in prison. You'll never guess what the Lord used to change his heart. She touched his arm. That was something that came sometime after he had spat in her face. But in a brief interaction, when he was walking to his cell, she touched his arm. And he sensed so much compassion and kindness from a woman who he knew was good. And for this hardened killer, it was that moment that broke him. 
another prisoner who had already been led to faith in Christ by Gladys, talked to this man, and he came to faith. He believed in the gospel. Simple things that we do can have such a tremendous impact in the lives of others, even things that we don't necessarily realize the significance of at the time. Don't think that God can't use you or that you don't have enough or know enough or are enough because ultimately we're not, but God is. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the God we follow. So Naomi has pledged her undying loyalty to, to excuse, Ruth has pledged her undying loyalty to Naomi. In the passage, Naomi's response She doesn't have one. Verse 18 says, When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth's words are decisive. We come to our third scene. Gentleness and bitterness. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Keep in mind, Bethlehem is a fairly small town. I know we've all heard of Bethlehem, but even, I mean, it's small. And I feel like now having lived in a small town has helped my perspective on this, but people remember Naomi. And no doubt, she is the talk of the town that week. When they walk into the diner, everyone's talking about Naomi. They don't have TV, they don't have smartphones, they don't have true crime shows. This is easily the most interesting thing going on in Bethlehem at the time. And they ask, is it Naomi? They know it's Naomi. Now, the word Naomi in Hebrew means gentle or pleasant. In verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. And she says that the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. We see how she feels about her situation. But this will really be another contrast between Ruth and Naomi. Both of them have suffered greatly and endured much. Verse 21, 22. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi says that she has left Israel full. Obviously, that's referring to she had left with her husband and sons. Although, it's also a little bit of a grass is greener sort of revisionist history because she had them, yes, and that's significant, but she had also left in a time of drought where she had fled. She says that she's come back empty. Certainly a little bit ironic, considering that Ruth has made the journey and committed her life to Naomi, and Naomi's saying, I got nothing. Had to stung a little bit on Ruth. The chapter ends by saying that they came to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And the end of this chapter will lead directly into chapter 2, and the barley harvest and the provision they receive will be the beginning of things starting to change for the better in their lives. Lord willing, we'll have more on that, though, next week. Focusing on today's passage, Naomi responds by wanting people to refer to her as bitter, which 
as a note on Ruth, nobody ever actually calls her that, nor does the author. But Ruth is looking at a similarly bleak future, yet we don't see bitterness from her. There are hardships we face. I'm sure that some of us have known people who have gone through difficult seasons, and they've responded like Naomi. They've become bitter. It might be that it might have put their faith and their walk with God into a really bad place. But I'm equally sure that we've seen people who have endured tremendous difficulties and responded like Ruth, who kept the faith, who have faced darkness but kept their light, who have faced sorrows but kept their joy, who have faced uncertainty but who walked in faith. Maybe we've even known people before who have walked in such a difficult situation and yet walked in such great faith that we've almost been humbled by them thinking, I don't know if I could do that if I were you. It's because of the God that they believe in. It's because he is good. And the person who keeps the faith through the greatest struggles knows that God is good. And it can be hard. And suffering can be tremendous. But to every day, in every way, be walking with the Lord, living for God, walking by the Spirit. And so she came into a difficult situation. Ruth chose to walk into what looked like nothing but suffering. I think it's pretty safe to say that most of us would choose not to suffer over suffering. Most of us would rather not suffer, knowing that it's inevitable that sometimes we do. But Ruth basically does a U-turn in her life and decides to go out of her way and head straight into difficulty and uncertainty. Ruth loved her mother-in-law, and she loved God. But the even greater example of the one who chose to face the even greater suffering in the Bible is Jesus. He loved the world and loved God the Father. Ruth faced a future where suffering seemed likely. Jesus came into the world to suffer. Ruth stepped into uncertainty. Jesus came into the world certain of what he must do to face persecution and betrayal, and to die in the most horrific way. But he did it for a redemptive purpose. He did it to forgive us our sins. He did it to bring new life. Out of love, Ruth faced an uncertain future to help take care of Naomi. Out of love, Jesus faced the cross so he could bring salvation. Radical faith in a faithful God. As we close, I have this question. When is the last time that you've truly had to lean into your faith in God and purely trust and rely on him? And for some of us, you might be going through that right now. And if you are, God bless you. I was talking to the Heinzmans before Sunday school today, and they were talking, and I think this is similar in a lot of ways to America, that in Taiwan, life's pretty good. In America, even difficult times, we still have a pretty good life. Most people throughout history would trade places to live where we live. And so things are comfortable. Things are pretty good. We don't face a lot of situations where we truly, truly have to rely and trust on God and his grace. How do we respond, though, in those moments and in those times? Because may we be a church of people who have a faith like Ruth, who have a reliance on God that Ruth has. One of the great dangers we face is living out of faith that means nothing and that asks nothing. Far too many 
Far too many people in our culture who claim to be Christians believe in a gospel of what we call cheap grace, where they say, yeah, Jesus sounds good, but then go on living exactly the way they were before and live lives that show no love or devotion to Christ. Being a follower of Jesus needs to mean something because the gospel is transformational. It's recognizing our need for grace, that even the most faithful and pious person here is still desperately in need of the grace of Christ, that when we come to faith, he lavishes upon us. But the message of the gospel is a message we need every day. Jesus saves us one time and once and for all. But every day we need to remember the gospel and the Savior who has died so that we can have life. Sometimes it means trusting God when we're going through difficult situations and seasons, a difficult illness, a time of loss. And in that, to know that we have a God that is greater than our circumstances. It's filling our minds with the things that are above. Sometimes it means recognizing areas in our life where we know we need to grow. Because none of us is a finished product. It's loving our neighbor. It's loving those around us who are hard to love. It can be so easy to be jaded and cynical with the world around us. Are we looking at our society as defeated people or as people who have a savior who has overcome the world? Do we spend more time judging the world or doing what we can to reach the lost and to serve? I'll close with this quote. It's the last words of Gladys Elward's autobiography. My heart is full of praise that one so insignificant, uneducated, and ordinary in every way could be used to his glory and for the blessing of his people in poor, persecuted China. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, may we live lives in the light of truth, of who you are, of who your son is. May we live lives of true faith, Lord. May we live lives that to the world look crazy because of our total dependence and love and devotion to you. Lord, may we live each day for you and for your glory. May we grow in our knowledge and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.